The family survival kit. I think all of us at one point or another might have needed that, right? Danny was searching Facebook the other day and she came across this quote. Every family has one relative, if, um, one weird relative. You, if you don't know who it is, then it is probably you. You know, this morning we are continuing our sermon series entitled The Perfect Family. So far we have looked together at the gospel and the dysfunctional family. We've looked at the gospel and marriage, the gospel and parenting. Last week we looked at the gospel and singleness. And now this morning we're going to look at the gospel and my extended family. You know, when we think about our families, some of our families in this room resemble a, 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 jo- a Jeff Foxworthy um, redneck joke. Am I right? I came across a couple of these, but you might be a redneck if you've ever had to lug a paint can to the top of a water tower to defend your sister's honor. You might be a redneck if your wife's hairdo has ever been destroyed by a ceiling fan. You might be a redneck if your mother has ammo on her Christmas list, you might be a redneck if, you, if your dad walks you to school because both of you are in the same grade. You might be a redneck if the worst part of your family reunion is seeing all of your exes. Uh, yeah. Hopefully none of you have been there. You know, in a matter of weeks, most of us in this room, we're going to gather around tables similar to this one right here. And we're going to, some of you are going to get in cars on airplanes, you're going to go visit family, and many of you are going to open up the doors to your home because many of your relatives and your children and your extended family will be coming to your home. And if your family is like the typical family, there may be a little contention that that happens around the table. There may be a little fighting. There may be a little food throwing. There may be some different things that happen. Because every family has um, some some relatives, at least one relative, that would match one of these relatives that I'm going to look at, that we're going to look at here. There's Grandpa Grumpy. How many of you have a Grandpa Grumpy? Man, Grandpa's just grumpy about everything. You can't make him happy. He's just what he is. He just, you know, always has that, that frown on his face and, and all of that good stuff. But there's Grandpa Grumpy, but there's also Grandma Sweetie. All of us have Sweetie Pie Grandma, right? I don't think any of us in this room would ever admit that our grandma is anything but Sweetie. If you do, there is something wrong with you, Okay. Because grandma, man, what does she do? She is always working hard, isn't she? Man, she's in the kitchen, she's cooking, she's constantly out setting the table, constantly being that person that's hugging everybody's neck, giving everybody a kiss, pinching the cheek, all that good stuff. And then there's also around the table, cousin irritable. How many of you have that irritating cousin? Man, that just kind of gets under your skin, around the table. They're just the one that's pushing all of the buttons. Man, they know how to get under the skin, and so they're starting to do that. There's ant complainer, that one ant that just complains about everything, can't make her happy no matter how hard you try. And then there's mama peacemaker. 
That probably describes most of our moms um, in this room, or, or when you think about your moms, always the peacemaker, always trying to reconcile everybody's broken relationships, trying to get the sis and brother, um, you know, kind of living in harmony together, always making sure that everybody is peaceful. And then there's daddy distracted. Um, sometimes I've been daddy distracted around the dinner table, especially on Thanksgiving, because usually when we we gather around the table, there's a football game on. And, and if I can get away from that table and give up my seat at the table so that others can gather around the table, then I'll go in there with my plate of food and, the, and watch the, the Detroit game or the Cowboy game, whichever one is going on. But most of us in this room, we can relate to somebody around this table, can't we? This morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about the importance of, of all of us living in harmony with one another. Okay, Our, uh, When you think about um, the early church, there were many things that were going on. In 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, um, that's what we're going to be focusing on. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 12 together. Peter wrote this book to a suffering church. It was a church that had many things that were, 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 were going on within it and outside of it. Everybody was against them. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter wrote these words. He wrote, or we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Here's what's going on. The church is suffering. They have been displaced as after the stoning of Stephen in Acts, where we read about Stephen being stoned. After that point, persecution was just ramped up against the believers. And so the believers that were in Jerusalem scattered throughout all of Asia throughout the known world. And when they entered into these different cities, they were without a doubt, they would experience persecution. They would experience persecution from the Roman government. They would experience persecution from the religious leaders. And they would also experience persecution from those that would live in the cities in which now they were inhabiting. He, so Peter is writing this church or the church to encourage them to comfort them, and also to prepare them for even greater persecution that would be coming. Ultimately, what Peter is doing is calling these believers to surrender their lives completely over to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling them to a life of holiness. He's calling them to a life of abandonment and submission even to the religious leaders and to the government of the day. Ultimately, he is calling them also to a life of love. It's a message point this morning. It is this, a call to love. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, these are the words that we read. Peter wrote, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, 
brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling, but on the contrary, bless, for to do this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears open to their prayer." But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Our first point this morning is this. We need to be unified. Unity is hard sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to be unified as a church. It's hard to be unified within the world that we live in today. We really are a divided people. We see division within the church. Every time we turn the television on, we see that we are a divided nation. We see that we are a divided world. What's Peter doing here? He is calling this first church in the midst of all that's going on, in the midst of the division, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the government coming down hard on them and the religious leaders coming hard, down hard on them. He's calling this church to be unified. You and I are called as believers to be individuals that bring about unity even in the midst of chaos. And within verse 8, Right at the very beginning of our focal passage this morning, what Peter is going to do is he is going to, to lay out five exhortations to this church. And he's telling these people, and he's telling us, that if we would live our lives in accordance with these exhortations, then we would live more of a unified life than we would live a divided life life. So the first thing that we see again in verse 8 is this, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter first calls this church to be unified in mind. Most of us are willing to have one mind, aren't we? We're willing to have one mind as long as everybody else's mind is like ours, right? We're going to get along A hundred percent of the time, if everyone agrees with me around our table, right? We sometimes we feel that way, don't we? We feel like, hey, I'm going to be able to bring about reconciliation. I'm going to bring be able to bring about peace around my table with my extended family, with my church family, with those that I work with, as long as everybody agrees with me. That's kind of selfish sometimes, but that's how we feel often. When, when Peter talks about having the unity of mind, what he is talking about is our mind must be like the mind of Christ. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul wrote these words, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our mind, Our heart, our lives need to be conformed to the life of Christ. When you think about that and ask, how do we we have that unity of mind? Well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to enter into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We must know Him. If you're in this room this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to invite you today to make the greatest decision that you could ever make, and that is to repent of your sins and to place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to call out to 
him as God's word says, as Lord and Savior of your life. And the Bible says if we do that, then we will be saved. So if we want to have a unified mind as individuals, as a church, as, as, a, as a human race, our mind must conform to the mind of Christ. So we must know him, we must know his word, and we also must be obedient to living out his word. It's one thing to read the word, but it's another thing to live it out. Am I right? If we want to have a unified mind, we must live out God's word. Notice also Peter says that we must have a unity in the area of sympathy. You and I are to be caring people. We are to care about the needs of those within the church. We are to be concerned about the needs of those outside of the church. And we need to care about the needs of the lost that we interact with on a daily basis. And we need to care about the needs of those that gather around our tables daily and those that gather around our tables when we come together as an extended family unit. In Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 16, we read these words. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We must pay attention to the needs of others. When you see a need or a hurt inside the church, outside the church, around your table, we need to be the hands and feet of Christ and help to, to meet that need. Notice also, Peter calls us to be unified in brotherly love. Love amongst believers was very important for Peter. And he called this, these churches to love one another. In fact, other times that he called this church to love, a couple of the examples in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1.22, Peter wrote, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And in 1 Peter 2.17, he also wrote, wrote, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter challenged the church to demonstrate unity amongst one another. And you and I must take what we learn from God's word and apply it to our lives on a daily basis. We are called to love. We're not just called to love the lovable, but we're called to love everyone. That includes cousin irritable, aunt complainer, grumpy grandfather, that, that, that new, new, nuisance of a brother or a sister that we might have. We're called to love everyone, those inside the church, outside of the church, and those that gather around our tables. Notice also, Peter talks about how we are to show unity in the area of being tender-hearted. You and I are to be compassionate people. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul wrote these words, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, sometimes it's hard to show compassion towards other people, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. How many of you have been, ever been deeply wounded by a family member? How many of you have ever been deeply wounded by a family member? How many of you have ever been deeply wounded by somebody in the church? 
How many of you have ever been deeply wounded by someone that you do life with on a daily basis? Maybe that's at at work or a neighbor or something like that. I think all of us would admit that all of us have probably been deeply wounded by, by, by most of those that we do life with. Why is it? Why is it that we are deeply, deeply wounded by those that we do life with? Why? Because we're sinners that have all fallen short of God's glory. There's going to be times whenever, when we're going to respond in a way that we shouldn't as believers. There's going to be times when unbelievers respond to us in ways that they shouldn't. Do we write them off? Do we kick them to the curb? Do we tell them that we're not going to do life with them anymore? No. We are to be tender-hearted people. We are to respond with love and with compassion. We are also to be unified in the area of humility. Someone that is humble is someone who considers others better than oneself. It is hard sometimes to be humble toward those that ridicule us. It's hard to be humble sometimes toward those that ostracize us or those that belittle us. But that's exactly what we've been called to be. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we read these words. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection in sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significantly than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Getting back to having one mind, having the mind of Christ, that is what we are to do. Jesus demonstrated for us what humility looks like, didn't he? He demonstrated for us humility when he humbled himself, when he left heaven full of all of its glory, and he came and dwelt among us, a bunch of wretched sinners. He came and dwelt amongst us some 2,000 years ago, and he loved all those he encountered. Ultimately, Jesus would go to the cross, and he would die on that cross. He would shed his blood for us. Why? Because he loved us. His blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. Jesus died on that cross. He was placed in a grave. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Why did he rise from the dead? What did that prove? It proved that he is indeed God, that he was indeed the Son of God. And through the resurrection of Christ, every single one of us that are dead in our sins today can be made alive through Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you are still dead in your sins, know this. If you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can rise to life again and experience life as it was intended to be experienced. Jesus said in John 10, 10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have a full, abundant life. Through Jesus, you can experience such a life, even in the midst of, 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 of tragedy, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of heartache, you can still experience a full, abundant life because you have hope found in Jesus Christ. Around our tables, let us be people of humility and people of unity 
and people that point others toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice also, we are to be a blessing. We are to be a blessing. In verses 9 and 10, we read, Do not repay evil for evil, or reveling for reveling. But on the contrary, bless, for to do this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Forever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. When is it hardest to be a blessing? Generally, it's hardest to be a blessing when someone has wronged us. Am I right? What do we want to do when someone wrongs us? Man, we want to get back at them, don't we? Man, if I'm wronged, then man, you know, Equal measure. Whatever you do to me, man, it's going to be equal or it's going to be enhanced a little bit. That's what our natural reaction is to do. But what are we instructed to do right here? In verse 9, again, we read that we are not to repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling. Folks, we must respond as Christ instructs us to respond. It doesn't matter how vile that person is toward us. We are still to respond to them in love. doesn't mean that we have to always like them. Doesn't mean that we have to hang out with them outside of work or outside of whatever it might be, but we are still to demonstrate the love of Jesus amongst those, even those that have wronged us. Notice we are called to seek harmony. We should seek harmony within the church and outside of the church. Do not be that father Do not be that mother. Do not be that relative or that friend that is always seeking an argument with somebody. Seek harmony around your table, harmony within your place of employment, as well as harmony within the church. In Luke 6, 28-29, Jesus instructed his disciples and the crowd and us in this way. He said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So we are to seek harmony. And we are also to speak truth. In verse 10, Peter wrote, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You and I are called to keep our tongue in check. For some of us in this room, that is a very hard thing to do, isn't it? We do not like to keep our tongue in check. If you're like me, man, you want to speak your mind 100% of the time. But if you're like me and you speak your tongue 100% of the time, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be some dissension, isn't there? There's going to be some dissension around the table. There's going to be that at your place of employment, in your schools, in your homes, in your neighborhoods. That's what's going to happen when we speak in a way in which our tongue is not in check. You know, God's Word has much to say about the power of the tongue. In Proverbs 21, 23, we read, Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. How many times has this saying right here got you in trouble? Too many to count, am I right? But if we would just be obedient to God's Word, what does it say right here? Basically, if you keep your tongue in check, you're going to stay out of trouble. Kids, 
You keep your tongue in check, you're going to stay out of trouble in your home and at your school. In Proverbs 15.1 we read, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This is probably an area that I must work the most to, to in. Because sometimes I respond in a harsh way. I respond and I overreact. Others of you in this room may likewise say, that is me. What does God's Word say? That a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In James chapter 1, verse 26, we read, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. We've got to keep that tongue in check and bridle that tongue. You know the reason that, that so many people outside of this door, you know why they don't like us as Christians? Why they call us hypocrites? A lot of times because of our tongue. Because there is no difference between our life and their life. Their life being that life of an unbeliever. A lot of times we don't respond to people in love. Man, a lot of times, man, we're the ones that are, are honking our horns on the highway. We're the ones, as we're at the ball game, that's yelling at the rep for making such an outrageous call. We're the one that's at work and somebody gets under our skin and we respond in a way that we shouldn't. And we're the Christians. Man, we're the ones that are supposed to be the light of the world. But sometimes we represent more darkness, it seems like, than we do light in this world. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, verse 29, we read, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Another translation, the way I memorized it in the NIV back in the day was, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Let's keep our tongue in check so that what comes out of our mouth is wholesome and pure and lovely and uplifting. In James chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, we read, "But But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Translated, in here we bless the Lord, we sing to the Lord, we worship the Lord, and we answer everybody in a loving way. But sometimes when we leave this place, we answer and respond so much like the world instead of much like Christ. What does James say? He says, these things ought not to be so. Let's all work in, together at this. Next, we are called to do good. Let him turn away from evil and do good is what the first part of verse 11 says. When you and I respond in love, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're doing good. When we bridle our tongue, what are we doing? We are doing good. When we point people to Jesus Christ, what are we doing? We are doing good. So let us always do good and never do evil. Finally, this morning, notice the final point is this. There is the call to be peaceful. 
Again, in verse 11, we read, Let him turn from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. First thing that we're called to do in this verse is seek peace. As a believer, you and I should seek peace. And one way we do this is by being people of peace. Back when we were going through our Matthew study, we looked at the, the Beatitudes together. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, we read, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What is a peacemaker? A simple definition is this. A peacemaker is one who seeks to reconcile people to God and to one another. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be people of reconciliation. We're called to take that which is broken as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and reconcile it and make it straight again. One writer wrote this about peace. He said, Jesus came to establish peace. His message explained peace. His death purchased peace, and his resurrected presence enables peace. The messianic predictions were that he would be the prince of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. And you and I are to reflect an attitude of peacefulness even during times of contention. Even when the enemy attacks. Even when family members attack even when a brother or sister in Christ attacks. The enemy of the early church was the oppressive Roman government and the religious leaders. Peter is telling the church to seek peace even when the enemy is attacking. All of us must be people of peace. That's seeking peace even when the enemy attacks. Not only are we to seek peace, but we are also to pursue peace. Sometimes peace must be pursued. Sometimes peace will come to us. Sometimes peace will come to our borders. And other times, what do we have to do? We have to pursue peace by taking peace to another person. We may sometimes need to be the people that's like the mama around the table that's always the peacemaker. Peaceful mama. Sometimes we must be that individual around the table that's seeking to bring about peace and harmony, even when it seems so foreign and so out there. Peace is not an easy thing to come by in many of our lives. Your life and your family relationships right now may resemble a time of war instead of a time of peace. And the easy thing to do is to run, to run away. The hard thing is to pursue peace. For the sake of God's glory in your life and through your life, let me encourage all of us to be people of peace. People that seek out peace and people that pursue peace. The final thing that I want us to see here is that we must be people that always pray. We are called in this passage this morning to be people of prayer. In verse 12, Again, we read, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The Lord is concerned about you. He loves you. He loves this church. 
He loves your family. He loves those outside of the doors of this church as well. How do I know this? Because right here in verse 12, we read, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. The Lord watches over us. The Lord hears all of our prayers. You and I need to be people of prayer. We need to be people that make supplication on behalf of the needs of others. We need to pray for those inside this church. We need to pray for those outside the church. We need to pray for those that are going to gather around our tables in a matter of, of, of weeks. We must be people of prayer. Let me challenge you even this morning to begin now making supplication for those that need it. You know, we are a faith family that right now, man, there's a lot of hurt that's going on in our midst. You know, just this week we've had um, at least one of our faith family members that have had surgery. Um, Shasta, she had surgery on Friday and is going to be in the hospital for a, a couple of days. We've got, I know of at least two surgeries that are coming up this coming week. One because of cancer and the other is the result of a cyst that, that one of our faith family members has on their, on their brain or a tumor. Um, there has been a lot of, of, of extended family, um, Issues that have happened this week that has called um, many within the faith family and many within this individual family to hit their knees, probably like they haven't hit their knees in a long time. There is a lot of hurt and pain that is going on even within our small church this morning. We are called to pray. Know this, that when we pray, the Lord hears our prayers. When we make supplication on behalf of another person, the Lord hears our prayer. So if we would commit even now to pray for those that are going to gather around our tables or, or um, in, in just a matter of days or weeks, if we would even begin now praying for them, maybe the Lord will tenderize their heart so that as we're around these tables, we will have the opportunity to present the good news of salvation to them. We are to always pray. We are to always seek to bring about the peace of Christ and not division. In closing this morning, I know that, that, that some of you deal on a daily basis, a weekly basis, or you're dreading gathering around your tables because there are going to be difficult people around them. Let me encourage you as we close this morning to pray. Once again, be people of prayer that are going to pray for those around our tables. Examine your own heart and ask yourself, am I the difficult person? Am I the one that's causing division around the table? And if that's you, do something about it. Be patient. Around these tables, many of our family members are not believers. Guess what? Lost people act lost, don't they? 100% of the time. Be prepared for that. So be patient. Be gracious. 
Learn to apologize. Sometimes that's what's needed, isn't it? Do not give up. Excuse me a second. Let me encourage you for the sake of your family, do not give up. Do not give up on anyone that sits around your table. Also, don't give up on that individual that's not going to gather around your table because right now they don't want to be around you. They may be that wayward child, that wayward aunt, uncle, cousin, nephew, whatever the case might be. They may not want to gather around your table. So what should you do? Don't give up on them. Continue to pursue after them. In closing, be loving. Be loving to those that are going to gather around your table. Be loving to those within our faith family. Be loving to those at work, at school, within your own homes. Let us be people that love those that we come in contact with on a daily basis. You know, you may be here this morning, and you yourself do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, you may be thinking, man, there's a lot of division that's in my family, and sometimes I'm the source of that division. And, and you may be able to root, link that back to the fact that you don't know Christ as your Savior. You may be here this morning, and you think, man, I'm the best person that's in this room. Man, I'm always loving, I'm always encouraging, I'm always this, that, or the other. But you're recognizing this morning that there's one thing that's missing from your life, and it's the most important thing, and that is a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're a sinner, just like all of us in this room, and you have yet to ask Jesus to forgive you of those sins, and you have yet to cry out to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. You may be here this morning. The Lord's leading you to become a part of this faith family, and we invite you to do that. I don't know what decision you need to make, but I want us to stand together, and I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. You stand as we pray. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you now. And Lord Jesus, we all admit that we all have fallen short of your glory. We all, Father, have made mistakes. Father, sometimes we're the source of division. Sometimes we're the one that is not bringing about unity around our tables. And for that, Lord, we ask you to forgive us. Father, I just pray now, Lord Jesus, that if there's someone in this room that has yet to receive you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today they'll make the greatest decision that they could ever make. That is to repent of their sins and to cry out to you to be Lord and Savior of their lives. And if they do that, your word makes it so clear in John 1, 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, they have been given the right to become children of God. For those that cry out to you, they become your child. And so, Father, I pray that if there is someone here this morning that is yet to do that, that they will do that this morning. And, Father, I pray, Lord Jesus, also this morning that if there is a family here that you're leading to become a part of this faith family, that today that they will join this church if that is where you're leading them, if this is where you are leading them. Father, there may be some of us this morning that we just need to pray as a result of a message like this because we realize that sometimes we're the source of division, even though we are believers. Sometimes we cause that division, that that contentiousness around our tables. 
And Father, for that, we ask you to forgive us. I ask you to forgive me. Father, as we enter into this time of invitation, just move within the hearts of everyone in this room. First, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.